0: We've been going through the first few chapters of Genesis. We've only got a couple of weeks left in this series before we kind of change directions. This week, I want to look at the story of the flood. Next week, Justin Lesline, who's director of young adults here at First Presbyterian, will be with us. And then we'll end up uh, in Genesis 22. Uh, Justin will look at Abraham, the life of Abraham, uh, the covenant made with Abraham. And then, Genesis 22, I'll lead us through the sacrifice of Isaac and what God was doing. Uh, there in, in the last time. And then we'll change, leading up to, believe it or not, uh, uh, Easter, and we'll have a series on the cross of Christ leading up to, to Easter. So you can tell uh, your, your friends and coworkers and invite them to come on with you. I love seeing your smiling faces every week, but love to see others and new faces. So feel free to invite uh, others and bring them with you. Let me read to start us off. Well, let me start with this. When I was in St. Louis in seminary, we uh, we lived in an area called Brentwood, and not too far from where we lived was a community that a story came out of, in our, during our second year in seminary, a story came out of there that made national news, and it was not too far from us, and we were just floored to have been to have, have, have eaten at a restaurant in that neighborhood, to have walked the streets, and to kind of know that this is exactly where this story happened. And it was a story of a guy named Sean Hornbeck, who was a, a boy who had been kidnapped, and he was held captive by a guy named Michael Michael Devlin that owned a, pizza, a pizzeria, and he was held captive. He kidnapped and held captive for four years. And... What, what was interesting about the story was not just that he'd been kidnapped and held captive, but that this, this boy named Sean Hornbeck um, ended up actually, when he was discovered these four years later, he identified himself not as Sean Hornbeck, but as Sean Dev, Devlin, who was his captor's name. And when he contacted the police to report a stolen bike uh, after his abduction, he gave no hint that he'd been captured. Or that he was being held captive. Uh, in an interview aired later on CBS, uh, the reporter noted that the boy's parents had requested that Sean not be asked why he never spoke up. And it, it, it created a lot of buzz because similar things have happened over the years. And it's come to, it's come to be known, that whole phenomenon has come to be known as, as the Stockholm Syndrome. After a robbery that happened in Stockholm, uh, Sweden, a long time ago. And the whole idea is that this weird phenomenon happens where those that have been taken captive end up um, loving and becoming devoted to their captors. And it's a whole um, a lot of, of complicated sin that happens in the midst of all that process that that, that, that makes that happen. But when I heard about that, Uh, A number of my friends in seminary, we were talking about it, and we were like, man, what a great, sad, but what a great picture of what our life is like in sin. Is that we have, in essence, been taken captive by our, our sin, and instead of striving to break free from it, which would be normal, we end up committing to it and staying loyal and and not struggling against it I don't know of any story in the scriptures that picture that better for us than the story of the flood it is a sad sad picture but it's powerful and its lessons for us are are very very um, pertinent to our 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 daily lives today. Let me read just a a little bit, and then I'll reference a number of verses throughout chapters six through nine. But let me just give us an introduction to it by reading, starting in chapter six, verse one. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives many any they chose. And the Lord said, "My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh." For his days shall be a hundred and twenty years. Then a film were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now there's debate, uh pause here just a second, there's debate on, on the, the, the details of what Moses is talking about in, in some of those terms. But best I can tell in studying the text, leading up from what we talked about the last two or three weeks is that there was the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. There was the sons of men and the sons of God. And it's talking about these two, um, the, the the good seed and the corrupt seed mixing here and, uh, and the sin that comes out of, of those relationships. Verse 5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And listen to this, that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth. It grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man who I'm created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I'm sorry that I've made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Let me just recap briefly what's what the story is, and then we'll learn, we'll draw three lessons from it. We remember that Adam and Eve were sent out from the garden because of their disobedience. They have two boys, Cain and Abel, and Cain, in anger and jealousy, murders his brother and is cursed. And in just five generations, Cain's descendants were taking multiple wives, singing and bragging about killing for insignificant reasons. The world had quickly become a violent and miserable place. Noah descends from Adam's other son, Seth, who was born after Abel was killed. And his descendants did call upon the name of the Lord in worship. And here we've got Noah, who was a middle-aged man, you know, around 500 years old. And God comes to him. And God tells him to build this vessel that is one and a half football fields long and a quarter of a football field wide and 45 feet high. And to build rooms, because he was going to take on board not only Noah and his family but two animals of each kind. And when he's 600, 100 years later, God tells him to get in. Rains and floodwaters burst forth. The image is powerful. It's, 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 It's used to capture the intensity of the flood because it's the idea of not only do rains come from above, but floodwaters burst from below, and water pours out to cover up the land. Water prevails on the earth for about 150 days, and then it slowly abates 150 days, and then the land dries out for 70 more days, while Noah sends out a series of birds to check things out. And after being in the ark for over a year, 370 days, Noah and his family and the animals come out to find the same world, yet different. It's been cleansed, it's like new, and Noah worships. And God reaffirms his covenant with the same categories, but things have been expanded on just a little bit. And God now covenants with Noah, not just as a man in God's image, but also as a sinner in the need, need of God's grace. Uh, so God has made adjustments for man's sin here. What do we learn? We've, not, we've all heard the story. It's one of my kids' favorite stories in the Bible. From a young age, but uh, mostly because they get to see pictures of animals and they get to talk about all the animals that they know. But it's really, it's not a kid's story. If we were to tell all the details, the gory details to our kids, it'd probably be too much for a two-year-old, a three-year-old to handle. Number one, one of the biggest things the story tells us is that we live under a huge threat. We live under a huge threat. There's a principle that goes all throughout the Old Testament that goes like this. As go the the king, so goes the kingdom. Or we could say it in more general terms. As goes the ruler, so goes everything under its rule. It's what God set up when he put man and woman to rule as his images over the face of creation. And we see that as they rule... In a rebellious way. um, Man's sin touches the whole creation. So that God must address not only us. But also the world. When he deals with sin. Sin is a matter of the heart. But from from the heart all of life is affected. And so because Adam. And his descendants have fallen. He's rendered himself incapable. Of fulfilling his calling. And it, it ends up affecting all of creation. Sin also requires God's judgment. The flood's not this arbitrary act of divine wrath, but it's the righteous judgment of God on a sinful race. God's orderliness and His beauty of this original creation and His intention for man has been undone by the disobedience of man. It grieves God's heart, and it should grieve our heart as we read it, that what what we love, what He loves, has been corrupted. And the flood, in some sense, blots out the human stain of sin and begins anew, but only confirms the fact that sin is, is, is in man's heart. We see and we read on, after this incident that Noah quickly falls into sin again because sin is inside him. It's not just outside of him. It's a huge threat. Think about it this way. What do you have to do to ruin your family? What's required... To obliterate the bonds that hold your home together. In our world, all that's necessary is for us to let nature, let sin take its course. Sin will prevail and our family will be destroyed if we just live naturally. That's the the threat that we live under in a world stricken with sin. Or think about it this way, what do you have to, to do to grow cold in your relationship with Christ? What do you have to do to ruin your walk with Jesus? Well, you don't have to do anything. Sin still, just like it did with Cain and Abel, sin still still seeks to master us if we don't continually resist it. Our walk with Christ grows cold, quickly. This applies to us as individuals and as cities and as nations. Uh, One person wrote about it this way. You think about God... Uh, creating us with a threefold mandate to live in right relationship with him, right relationship with others, and right relationship with his creation. Well, God's images had so radically departed from their original state that he looks and he He sees them worshiping images, and he says, no, no, I've, I've made you for a soul-satisfying relationship with me. He looks and he sees them killing and, and raping each other, and he says, no, no, I've I've made you to nurture and love and protect each other. And he looks and he sees them using their creative, creativity and skill to make weapons of war and violence. And he says, no, no, no. I've, I've made you to be artists and gardeners to cultivate creation in such a way that it screams of my glory and your enjoyment. It says in verses 5 through 7, The Lord saw the wickedness of man that it was great in the earth that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And that he was sorry that he'd made man on the earth. It grieved him to his heart. When I take a look at my children, and I remember the times that I've taken them in my arms and I, I cuddle them. And then I ask myself the question, and you ask yourself this question. What would it take, what would your children have to do for you to say and conclude, I'm sorry that I had you? How evil would they have to become for you to think the only recourse is for their own good, for the good of society, is to destroy them? You realize that's what's happened here? That's the gravity of how bad sin had become. It's unimaginable for us to think those things about our own kids. And it's, it's unimaginable for God to think that way about his people that he'd made, his creation that, that he'd so lovingly been involved in. But here he openly declares that the men and women that he'd made in his likeness were so corrupt, so utterly defiled, that they had to be destroyed. The violence, the strife, the hatred, the the abuse. Think about it this way. Maybe I'm saying more about myself than I should. But have you ever just been so mad you wanted to punch somebody in the face? somebody ever done something to you that you just... But you didn't. Maybe you did. But you, most of us know how to restrain those things, right? As adults, we know how to put on good faces and we walk away or we whatever else. Well, what if it wasn't restrained? What if every time somebody did something mad, we acted the way we feel? Well, it was unrestrained wickedness and violence. Every urge, every sin-sick thought... ...that came into man's heart, they were doing. It was that bad. And so God intervened. Because he loves us. Because he loves his world. He was not going to let the thing that he created... ...and the people that he created destroy themselves in this way. Sin still masters the human race today... ...and we still deserve the judgment of God. In fact, the scriptures say the judgment is coming. And this time it's not going to be a judgment of water to cleanse, but even a more powerful cleansing agent, that of fire, and that God will come and cleanse this world once and for all, the cleansing of fire. We've become so much opposite of our original design that we deserve to be destroyed. Thankfully, that's only one of three points of things that we learn from this, this message. The first is that we live under this huge threat. Secondly, And right on the heels of it, you see that God gives us a huge opportunity. Not only do we live under a huge threat, but God gives us a huge opportunity. God redeems in spite of sin. There's a pattern that develops as you read the Old Testament. It's a a pattern of first you see a divine promise or provision made. And then you see man messing it up. and Disobeying uh, in in light of a covenant they've made with God. And then you see God's judgment, a covenant curse against sin. But then you always see on the heels of that God's gracious redemption, His covenant blessing. God forever remains faithful to His covenant promises. Here's the creature who was created, gifted, and commissioned to be God's mediator of His covenant to all creation. And that mediator has now become a covenant curse upon the land. And so God Himself steps in to ensure the promise of His redemption. And God's judgment always serves His gracious intent. God's judgment is never an end in itself, but it's a means towards God's promise, peace. He judges the world in order to preserve His promise, to preserve the seed, to preserve His gracious intentions towards His creation. Uh, And you see that here in this story in in a very, very stark way. He destroys, but He preserves. He starts over, He cleanses, So that he can start afresh with Noah and preserve his good uh, plan. Uh, And you see it also in in places like uh, verse 8 of chapter 6. There's a verse that says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found favor. Genesis 19 uses the same kind of language when it's talking of Lot. Genesis 19 says it this way. It says, Lot who's being saved from Sodom and Gomorrah. It says, um, verse 15 of, of, of chapter 19, As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of this city. But he lingered, so the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him, and brought him out and set him outside of the city. As they brought him out, one said, escape for your life. Do not look back or stop elsewhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight. That's a a much better picture. Here's Lot who's actually resisting the saving grace of of God through these angels. And they have to actually take him by the hand, drag him out of the city and say, don't look back. Get out of here. And he says... And the same thing, the same language that's used here, that I have found favor or grace in the sight of God. And that even though there's nothing good in Lot, he's actually resisting God's good purposes. God, in his grace, takes him and rescues him from that. Well, the same language is here of Noah. Noah, in and of himself, he's called a righteous man, but he's not in and of himself. He's not perfect. He had found grace, favor in the eyes of God. God had preserved him and said Noah through you and your family I'm going to to continue my promise. And then you see his grace also at the end of this this section where you see the bow in the clouds and listen to this and in in chapter 9 God says to Noah and his sons, this is after they've come out of the ark. Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. With every living creature that's with you, the birds, the livestock, every beast of the earth that's with you. As many as came out of the ark, it's for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. Never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant I make between me and you and every living thing that is with you. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all the flesh of the earth. The bow is a sign of God's grace in the midst of judgment. Man's sin necessitates God's wrath. But in his abounding mercy, he declares that, that he and, and not, not man will have the last word. Even though man has declared he's going to be sinful and rebelled, God's grace is going to prevail. And it's a sign for God. It's, it's, the idea is of a warrior's bow... That is used um, for destruction. God's saying, "Hey, I'm, I'm hanging it up, and I will never again destroy the earth this way again." It's, um, it's this blessing that holds, even though, our, we, uh, our, even though of our brokenness, in the spite of our brokenness. And God says, "I'm going to remember it every time you see it." So every time you see a rainbow in the clouds, we can remember. We can remember of God's promise, but also He is looking and remembering His promise. Um, and the idea is that the bow that was aimed in judgment is now hung up, and it's it's pointing heavenward. And God um, is saying, "Hey, this this bow that was pointed in the earth in judgment is now pointed towards Me, and I, res- I will accept the responsibility. I will provide um, the the punishment." I will accept the punishment that you deserve. It's a huge opportunity that His grace affords us for redemption, for provision, even despite our our deserving His ju- judgment. Um, and here's the uh, here's another part of that. Not only has God created the salvation that that we need through sending His Son Jesus to ultimately receive that punishment that we deserve. But he's also given us day-to-day opportunities to live in light of that. There's a verse in chapter 8 that has escaped my notice for I don't know how many times I've read this story. And thank, thankful to a um, to a commentator, Derek Kidner, that, that, that brought it out. And this is what he says. If you read in chapter 8 Verses 21 and 22, it says, The Lord smelled the pleasing aroma. The Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. And then there's verse 22, this this stuck in there. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. Why is that verse in there? Think in studying it, God is saying, Hey, not only have I provided through my salvation in this ark a, a way to continue to start over and then to, to covenant with Noah and his family and to, pre- to preserve my promise, but I'm never going to let it get this bad again. Not only will I provide uh, the ultimate cure for sin. But I'm going to actually put some things in place to keep things from ever getting this bad again. Because the promise is is in your heart, sin is in your heart, Noah. And if I just if we just start over, it's just going to get this bad again. So what does he do? He he puts some things in place. He he puts seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night. And he says they shall not cease. Now I don't know if before the flood there had been seasons. I don't know. But here, God is being specific to say, hey, I'm going to make things in such a way that sin is restrained. It never will get this bad again. Yeah, you may see um, disaster in one area of the world. or You may see sin spreading in one part. But you also see the gospel spreading and, and, and uh, God's righteousness and blessing in, in different parts. So he's saying that the world will never get this bad again again. Um, and it, and it, as all these things go on. And part of it is just normal stuff. Um, he's saying things like, this is my interpretation. He's saying things like, when it's 20 below in the wintertime, murders are going to go down. Because nobody's going to get outside in 20, in 20 below and, and, and be committing crimes. It's going to be too cold. Uh, he's saying there's some natural things here that are going to be put in place, seasons coming and going, they are going to keep things. From, just, from man just being able to do whatever he wants to all the time. He's basically saying, I'm instituting things to sa- save man from himself at a root level. And then above and beyond that, I'm providing my grace. Um, I'm going to prov- pr- pr- uh, provide the, the seed, the seed, Jesus Christ, who will be the, the, pro- uh, the, the answer to this promise that I've made. So we've got this huge threat. I've only got two minutes left huge threat, huge opportunity through His grace to repent, to turn, to throw ourselves on Him, and then at a base level, just an opportunity to live life with what He's given us um, on on a day-to-day basis. And that's point number three. It's just that we've got to take up this huge responsibility. Noah and his family, even with sin in their hearts, still, were given an opportunity now because of the grace of the Lord to take up and rule righteously again. As they throw themselves at God's mercy, as they depend upon Him, and they do it imperfectly, they've still got this opportunity. And you see here the mixing of God's sovereign initiative, that's he, he that does it, but with man's responsibility, of Him calling us to take back up that responsibility that He's given us in Genesis 1. Um. We think, a lot of times, we, I've heard it called lifeboat theology, that many believers see Christianity as a way to escape from the world rather than as a commission to be involved in it. We get to thinking, you know what, let, let those that are opposed to God take care of this world because we're going somewhere else. Let's just have our hands full of just getting people on lifeboats to get into heaven. Evangelism. Seeing people turn from their sins and and towards God is the ultimate and primary task of the church. And as a Christian, there's no doubt about it. But it doesn't stop there. If we just give up the normal pursuits of life and leave it in the hands of those that that aren't influenced or don't trust the Lord, then what can we expect? Where can we expect the world to head? In the same direction that was heading pre-flood. One author said it this way. Sometimes I become angry with the direction the world is taking. I get tired of intellectuals laughing at religious people. I get irritated with politicians using religion to get votes. I'm incensed at doctors who murder the unborn and at lawyers who defend these atrocities. I get sick of pornography passing as art. I become infuriated with governments that oppress their citizens. But I have to admit, he says, that my anger is often misplaced. What should we expect when we leave those who are rebellious to the Lord in charge? Instead of being angry at the world, we should be upset with ourselves for letting things get this bad. The world, listen to this, the world has no solution. God has called us to be the solution. He's given us the responsibility of influencing culture for Christ. Where are the Christian leaders? Where are the Christian playwrights? Where are the believers moving into leadership roles in our colleges and universities? Which followers of Christ will take the high ground in medicine, law, and business? Our generation cries out for guidance, and we must provide it. And then he says this, where are the leaders? They're right here, right now, reading this book. He says, you are the salt of the light, salt of the earth, the light of the world. You are the one to take the world as your project. If you are a believer... One lesson that you learn from the story of the flood is that sin is a huge threat. And left to itself, left to ourselves, it will take us over. And we will not even struggle against it. But that God has provided huge opportunity through his grace. Not only to to provide a solution to the sin problem through a relationship with his son Jesus. But then to provide order to this world to restrain evil to such a point that his gospel can go forth. Ultimately and primarily in word to see people turn from their sins and to embrace God as their Savior. But also in the ordinary, everyday opportunities of life. Of being godly leaders. Of, of doing your job to the glory of God in such a way that cultivates um, things to scream of His glory, of His good. To use the influence that you have to be a, a, a light, to be salt on this earth. That's what he gave Noah. That's the same opportunity he gives us today. Let's pray that we would take up this opportunity and use it to bring glory to God. God, forgive us for our sins. We're, if we if we're to be honest, don't even understand totally the depths of our own sin. And we don't view sin, our own sin, as, as the threat that you display it as in your word. So give us a realistic view of the ugliness of our own hearts left to ourselves apart from you, but also give us great hope that you are a God who's faithful, that even despite us and in spite of us, you provide your grace, a a redemption, a way out through sending your son, Jesus. And God, we pray that because you've saved us from ourselves, because you have um, redeemed us, you put in our hearts a new heart that, that turns from sin and, and embraces you, that you'd help us to see that as, a, as an opportunity to take responsibility, to to rule in such a way as to bring glory to you. Help us to enter into all of these places, uh, these ordinary day-to-day opportunities, and to to enter in equipped with the good news of Jesus and leaning on your strength and to bring about Um, things in such a way that, that brings blessing and not curse. Would you do that in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.